Welcome to the Palisade Podcast, everyone. I'm Will McGough, checking in here with episode 17. Good to have you on board. We have an awesome conversation today with Ryan Sapina from Seek Outside. They're a tent manufacturer as well as backpacks here in Grand Junction. Super neat, local outfitter. I met Ryan this past summer as part of one of my jobs. Uh, For those of you that don't know me so well, I am the tent editor for Outside Magazine. So that means every summer and winter, I take all the new tents that are coming out in the industry, take them out in the wilderness with a team of testers, put them through the rigors of the environment, and see how they stack up. And I was able to grab one of Seek Outside's new tents this summer. It is called the Twilight. And it's a pretty unique tent, not only for its voluminous shape, let's say, but also because it is a hot tent. And that means it has a packable stove that you can install inside that will heat up your tent and keep you nice and warm and toasty in the winter and the shoulder season. So Ryan and I get into discussing about Seek Outside, the history of the company, how they started making tents. They actually come from a hunting background. And then we get into talking just a little bit about camping and backpacking and some wilderness issues. Wolves are coming to the Mesa. Talk a little bit about bears and how to protect yourself out there. We also get into the idea of hunting and how in the outdoor industry it's been a controversial topic. Some of the most hardy outdoor adventure gear has been manufactured by companies like Seek Outside who started with a hunting background and making their gear specifically for hunters who are going deep into the wilderness Mainstream companies, not so much. They don't like to touch the idea of hunting. Over the decades, a lot of outdoor media has tried to avoid this fact because hunting tends to be a hot-button issue amongst readers in certain publications. So we get into an interesting conversation with Ryan about that and just how their company is trying to move forward and how, in general, hunting equipment and companies with hunting backgrounds are starting to make a push in the outdoor industry. So we'll get into the conversation, but first I'm gonna practice my reads here with a Palisade news update. Palisade Kombucha is getting a new home. As you guys know, I am the co-owner of Palisade Kombucha along with my partner, Julia. For the past couple years, we have operated in various small manufacturing facilities, but we are finally ready to get a place of our own. We will be moving into a new location on 8th Street in the Sinclair Peachwood Diorio Shopping Center. Our unit specifically will be number five between Peachwood Liquor and the Sinclair Dynomart convenience store. We are really, really super excited. We're upgrading our manufacturing production, hopefully by more than double, moving into about 1,100 square feet. We are so thankful to you guys for your support over these last couple years, as well as all our wholesalers. We look forward to the next stage of the journey. Please keep your eye out for news at Palisade Kombucha on Instagram. We'll have more information coming soon on the space, as well as membership clubs and different ways to get involved. Elsewhere in Palisade, there is a growing coalition of folks who are working to bring a co-working space to Palisade. Do you work from home? Are you looking to get out of the house once in a while and meet other entrepreneurs who also live in Palisade? Well, maybe it's time you get involved. If you're interested in helping out or putting in your two cents about how to bring this to reality, reach out to me here at the Palisade Podcast. You can send me a message on Instagram 
I am loosely involved in this project, but it is mostly being head up by Tim Wenger of the Palisade Tourism Board, Ashley McGee of Taste of Palisade, as well as a couple others from the town. They're going to be applying for grant funding, but first they need to develop this plan, find a location. So if you're interested in getting involved, let me know. It would be a wonderful thing for the town of Palisade and a great way for all the business minds that live here to come together under one roof. Reach out to me at Palisade Podcast. Winter is here, guys. You probably noticed. If you haven't, you've been out of town. Powderhorn Mountain has got 12 inches of fresh snow in the past 48 hours. Things are looking up on the mountain. Originally, when they opened around Thanksgiving, they only had a run or two open. Now more terrain is being opened seemingly every couple days. Exciting time if you're a skier or snowboarder. Get everything waxed and ready. I keep seeing people around town who haven't been up yet. you got to go. Take in the views, breathe the fresh mountain air, and embrace the start of winter. All right, that's our first try at a Palisade news update. I think it'd be a cool way to start every episode. We don't have a newspaper here in Palisade, so we have very limited media to talk about town issues, very few avenues for places to get news out about events and happenings. I know the word spreads fast in a small town, but my dream would be to have a central location where our town could be front and center about what's going on. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We will jump into our conversation now with Ryan Sapina of Seek Outside. Just a couple programming updates from me. We have a lot of great shows on tap coming up. We have Julianne Adams from the Palisade Tourism Board. We have Liat from Wake the Voice. Going to be talking about how you can find that inner voice both in singing and in your personal life. We'll also have Mike from Pally Thai. Hopefully he'll give us an update on his new brick-and-mortar restaurant. These episodes will all be forthcoming in the next couple of weeks. If you want to be on the podcast, hit me up at Palisade Podcast. Enjoy the episode, everyone. So it must be difficult for you guys. What I'm sensing is, correct me if I'm wrong, just looking at your company, you guys started in 2009, right? And a lot of your background is in hunting gear. Now it sounds like you're trying to keep those hunting roots, but also play to a wider consumer market. So is that sort of the challenge of your evolving brand when you say, oh, we're trying to figure out what our company is going to be? Are you looking to appeal to a wider audience now? I would say... Like really what we're trying to do nowadays is kind of change the public perception, right? Because we're we're very popular amongst hunting folks just because that's where we've kind of invested a lot of our marketing money, like especially with our tents, right? Hot tents. Most of the people that are truly, that have to be deep in the backcountry and need our product are hunters, right? Because not a lot of people are you know, doing big backpacking trips in Montana in November, right? That's <laughs> it's not, I don't think I would ever do that if I didn't have a reason to go out there, right? So, but that being said, it doesn't make our product something, you know, hot tent is like, I'll, I'll take like in the winter, right? I'll take my, my, my eight person teepee and I'll take it over to my parents' house. You know, it gets here, it gets dark at 5 p.m. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of time at the end of the day to, to do stuff. And, you know, it's cold outside. What I'll do is I'll take my eight person teepee over to my parents' house, 
set it up. They have they have some property. We'll we'll go set it up. Uh, you know, get some whiskey, set the stove up, and we'll just sit outside. You know, while it's dark and and talk and do whatever. Um, that sounds so, so nice. Yeah, it's it's awesome. It's honestly your great. family all likes to do that. Oh yeah, your mom's yeah. not like, "What are you crazy? I'm gonna go sit up." My mom would be like, "What are you kidding me?" No, she's she's <laughs> all about it, man. She's she's one of the most uh, adventurous ones of the family there. But kind of where I'm going is, we think that it can be something that people could use for other things, right? And so, us as employees, we're all taking these out year round. Even the stove, you know, people think, "Oh, just winter stove." It's great in the springtime, great in the fall, um, as you've kind of experienced. We're trying to present that to to people in a different way and it makes total sense yeah i think you have a product that was designed for one class that is now going to have much broader appeal even if people aren't going to go out in december up on the mesa for a camping trip which by the way we should Mm -hmm. most people aren't going to do that so when could they use the hot tent though quote unquote right they could use it a lot of other times i think most people are freezing when they camp that's the biggest objection i hear from friends Mm mm-hmm because a lot of people don't like camping because either they don't like sleeping on the ground or they're too cold or whatever. Having this ability to heat your tent, I think, is a game changer for many. But let's let's work back a little bit. Yeah. For people that aren't really familiar with what you guys do or what a hot tent even is, can you just kind of briefly walk us through? I mean, it's so cool you guys are here. I don't think people even realize we have like a tent manufacturer in Grand Junction, which is freaking amazing. Yeah. Yeah, well, so, and it was 2009, 2010-ish, and yeah, so it actually started, uh, Kevin and Angie, Tim are the owners of the company here, and they started it down in in Uray, Colorado, a Ridgeway area, essentially just making tents and stoves out of their basement, and funny story on kind of how the company started, right, so Kevin and Angie, they have two kids, Owen, he works here, and then, you know, they have another another kid, one of the big impetuses for the whole floorless shelter was they were out in Moab and they were camping, you know, they had a half dome tent, a couple, I don't know, they're probably seven and nine and, uh, ate something wrong. It's 2 AM in the morning. They're all sleeping in the tent. Kids throw up. Oh no. And they spend the next, you know, two days cleaning the, the, the puke out of the tent. Good luck. And you know, that, uh, that wasn't the full impetus, right? But uh, that, I think that's. I never thought of story. that with with kid travel. That's a good point, though. Yeah. You throw up in the tent. It's it's hard to get that cleaned out. And, yeah. You know, yeah. without totally, especially while you're camping in it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and it, like for some, you know, if you just have a cheap Walmart tent at that point, it's almost worth just throwing it away and getting, well, getting it. a new one. But but yeah. Anyway, so like it was company. They started out of their, out of their basement, out of just. There were, it's not like we're the first teepee company, not like we had the first hot tent out there, but Kevin and and Angie thought that there were some things that could be improved upon. I mean, the titanium stove was, you know, we were on the, one of the first companies in on that. And, you know, we've, we've kind of changed some of the concepts of floorless shelters. And now we have like our zipperless line and it's kind of just evolved from Kevin and Angie wanting to make things that they could take out. And then they saw that it was something, you know, they had people asking about them while they were out elk hunting or, or backpacking or something like that. And they're like, all right, you know, let's, let's start a company. And yeah, we, I mean, we're, I, I would say that we're doing very well and we're kind of expanding into some new markets like we were just talking about. And well, for people that don't know a hot tent, let's just explain oh, what yeah. that is. It's, a, it's like a regular tent, 
but it has the ability, has a stove jack in it, so you have the ability to install a backcountry stove. Mm-hmm. And you just said it. They're made of titanium. They're super lightweight. What is it? One and a half, two pounds, the stove? Yeah, I mean, depending on which one you go with. Right. So you unscrew it all. It fits into a little briefcase, like carrier, that you could slide into your pack and forget mm-hmm. it's there, essentially. And your tents are very lightweight. But then mm-hmm. when you get there, it's a pyramidal, pyramidal style shape. Most of them, you just had mm-hmm. a new one that's a little different. But... And then you expand and roll up this stove jack that fits through the top of the tent and connects mm-hmm. to the stove inside. And then you put actual wood in there mm-hmm. to heat the tent. Yeah. And it makes it really hot in there. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. The, the, that is the cool thing about titanium is, uh, and good, getting back to your point of when people can use a hot tent, I always remember as a kid, even in the summer, right? You go up to, if you go camping here in Colorado, you're up at 10,000 feet. In the morning, it gets it gets freaking it's cold. chilly, yeah. Especially if you go in like early June, late, you know, maybe September. You get some rain and wind. Exactly, it can be chilly. The titanium is has like a lot of stoves for like wall tents or you know traditional wood burning stoves are either cast iron or stainless steel, and they're heavy, especially cast iron. But they also have low transfer rates, right? So what that means is it takes a while for that heat to to pass through and actually heat the space up like with titanium i'm sure you experienced this but like when you get that thing fired up it can be like five minutes in between the time you get that fire going and it's like hot in there to where you're shedding layers so 100 it's great for in the morning because you especially if you just keep like a little ball of tinder a couple pieces of dry wood um you know just readily available you can spark that stove right up and get get warm in you know five minutes so i did it in the middle of the night yeah we had the stove going we went to sleep and then woke up in the middle of the night was a little chilly i did not necessarily have the tinder bowl prepared which i regretted but yeah fumbled around for a couple minutes but put some wood in there lit it up and then it was so romantic just that idea of lighting that fire and feeling that warmth come back and drifting off to sleep in the bag again i mean it was just it changed a lot for the shoulder season camping yeah and in that particular time it worked out amazing because you know, it wasn't too cold to be outside. It wasn't like we were in a foot of snow. This was in the fall, but it gets dark earlier. So you can kind of make your tent cozy and go in. But the best was in the morning. We woke up, it was light rain, just overcast, a little nasty. We just lit the stove and then the twilight tent, yours, it's big enough. You can put your camp chair inside, like your backpacking chair. Mm -hmm. So we just sat in there and had coffee and were warm while it was raining. Yeah. Whereas traditionally, because we were just up on the Mesa, you know, we would have probably just packed up and left right mm-hmm. away. You wake up, it's raining. It's like, oh, fuck, let's get out of here. Get out of here, yeah. Right? But that extended our time. It eventually stopped raining. We got out. It was great. It was just, I think it opens up a whole new thing to just people that are camping in shoulder season or even people that just want to have a different kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they just, they love camping, but they hate the cold part of it. Yeah. I think there's so many people like that. Yeah. Are you finding that? Are people, as you reach out marketing-wise, that people are receptive to this idea? Definitely. I I mean, camping is just such a, especially in, because traditionally we were in more of a market that was like hardcore gearheads, right? So they, they knew that, that there was some work to be done, right? Like with gear like this, there, there's almost like a learning curve that goes into it, right? Like you got to learn how to use it to really make it work to the point where, it's at its peak performance, right? Um, like with the stove, 
you know, there's some things with learning how to burn it. So tinkering to get the pipe in there, exactly. getting it all to fit, which angle, where to put it, yep. how not to burn yourself because they do get pretty hot. They do. Yeah. yeah, you're right. You could, yeah. I put my cup on top of the stove and the water could boil. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, it, it transfers heat pretty quick. Yeah. Which is cool. But yeah, learning, you don't want your three-year-old kid wandering through the tent with no. something like that, right? Yeah, probably Or your not. dog or so. So there's a little bit educational component you're talking exactly. about right? yeah but I, I think once people get that like you know they it's pretty plain to see the, the benefit of having because propane heaters right there's there's danger there carbon monoxide you have that stuff close to your sleeping bag there's we've all hor- heard the horror stories some of the cast iron stoves they take forever to set up they're super heavy you're not traveling far with them exactly yeah. with ours i mean i think that they're very easy to set up and again, they, they get burning real quick. So I think once you convey that to people, people see that like there's a very clear benefit, especially if you can take it backpacking. Even, you know, one of the one of the biggest things that we see with our stoves is people calling in saying like, especially hunters, you know, because it's they're tr- traditionally out in colder times of year. But they're they're like, yeah, I mean, that that stove kind of like saved my life. Right. Because you can get it fired up. And if you get wet clothes, that's that's one of the biggest safety concerns out there it's just hypothermia especially november december and out west here it can it can get real cold real fast and um you know obviously for your summertime user it's not as much of an issue but if you have even if you're camping three miles away from your truck in the summer especially in colorado there's always rainstorms you take that stove up i mean it's not much to carry that thing i mean two pounds you throw it in the back of your pack you don't even notice it you dry your clothes off good to go so i wonder if there's a lighter piece of equipment that is more of a game changer because if you have that and you decide you want to use it i mean it can change your whole day or experience around or night around and like you say you wouldn't even know it was there well and we did uh we are getting ready to i mean today is december 5th it'll be out soon so i don't know if this podcast will be out by then but we're we're coming out with a ultralight grill top for it um so give you more of a reason to take it out in the summer because you can actually throw it on top of the basically replaces the main grill top or the main stove top with a an open piece and then like an actual grill like you have on a charcoal grill so you can cook on it that'd be cool um, yeah so it's just another way to use it in the summer but without setting it up inside the tent you mean yeah setting yeah. it up outside yeah you yeah. definitely want to set it up outside but yeah smoke some fish or whatever smoke some fresh caught trout pretty sweet love that what do you think about the perception of hunters in this industry? Because I grew up in Philly, South Jersey area. So I knew some people that deer hunted when I was a kid, but it really wasn't that big a thing. You get into a lot of the East Coast cities, they're not really familiar, let's say, with the hunting culture. right? Yeah. And so a lot of, uh, having worked in media, a lot of outdoor publications, uh, companies that make gear, they're very hesitant to talk about hunting Mm -hmm. or to cover hunting stuff because some people have such a visceral reaction to it they're so against it we can debate all day whether it's more ethical to go to the grocery store or to kill your own food but since i've been out here in colorado and meeting a lot more hunters i've just realized how unfair that is because hunters are perhaps the hardiest outdoor people they're not just going on like a beer drinking camping trip they're going outdoors at high elevations and roaming for days weeks at a time Mm -hmm. so they really experience the wilderness like they're really backpacking they're really camping Mm -hmm. they're really out there in all conditions and i feel like they're just such a great resource for testing outdoor gear 
do you have that same perception as me with other people in the outdoor industry and media like as it relates to hunting yeah i mean so it is very interesting i don't know if you've heard the the saying where like not all fishermen hunt but all hunters fish right have you heard that at all no okay well i think it's say it again so it's it's not all fishermen hunt but all hunters fish so it's it basically i think the concept is right like the more you get into some of these niche outdoor activities right like if you're a rock climber right you could probably say not all hikers rock climb but all rock climbers hike mm. right just because it's like it's a more the hiking is the first step and then you get into this and then you get into that that makes sense yeah. I, th- I think hunting is kind of deep into that into that chain there where a lot of people are are born and raised in hunting you know they're, that's i feel like that's the number way one way that people get into hunting is you know they have a grandfather or a dad or uncle or something that takes them hunting but it's usually not just hunting right like i i would say especially out west here the majority of the people that are hunting are also they're skiing in the in the winter they're fishing in the spring they're they're backpacking in the fall so they're like a lot of these people and there's obviously exceptions to that rule like there's people that just go out to hunt and to drink beer right (laughs) like there's there's a reason why that stereotype exists but i would say that's a very small percentage but i guess what i'm getting at here is yeah they are great people to have kind of just like ultralight backpackers are right these these people that are way too hardcore for the average weekend warrior these are the people that you get that that deeper level of feedback for that are maybe you have a tent that um, they'll, they'll give you the feedback that, oh, I was pitched up on this this ridge eight miles back on up in Idaho and we had 60 mile an hour winds and the, and the tent broke. Most people aren't going to experience that, right? But it's good to have that data point because then you can be like, okay, well, this is why it failed and this is what we need to change it. So I don't know if that exactly answered your question. Well, I guess I'm just commenting on there's been such a hesitancy. I feel like it's changing. Like when I first started writing about the outdoors, magazines like Outside Magazine, they they were very careful about how they talked about hunting, Mm. how even as working in tents for outside, talking about tents and the companies and where the, the design features come from. They were very hesitant to talk that it came from hunting or the hunting background because yeah. they didn't want their readers to just latch onto that and react and say, oh, you're promoting killing animals or whatever. That being a hot button issue, they've always sort of swayed away from that. Mm-hmm. The mainstream tent manufacturers of the world, MSR, REI, they all make wonderful tents, but they're not touching hunting. They never yeah. say a word about that in their marketing. Yeah, I've just noticed that hesitancy. And now it seems like more companies are coming up like yourself who are smaller tent makers, smaller gear makers. And people are realizing how freaking good the gear is because they've been doing for a decade like you guys have of sending their gear out with the hardiest outdoor people. Mm -hmm. So I just feel like the industry could so benefit from getting over this whole fear of hunting and looking at a lot of these smaller companies that are producing just amazing gear yeah in my mind. well i i would say that sometimes hunting doesn't exactly help itself right as a as an activity there's the people that negatively preach for hunting right like the the people that are posting stuff on instagram that is not that is very blatantly not very friendly to 99% of people it respectful yeah you're talking about guys posting like with the deer head that they're holding the antlers or something like that well or- i see 
so I would say I wouldn't say that because I I've you know I've posted I mean you got that picture right up there that's oh, nice. me and my my family we got it's my dad my brother we all got our our caribou up in Alaska see I personally think that the grip and grins you can do mental gymnastics all day on on whether or not that's respectful I won't get into that but I'm talking about more like like very clearly graphic videos that if somebody was not had no experience with hunting and they just saw this one video they'd be like oh these people are evil right so like gutting the animal or yeah something, something like, like that. that where yeah. it's like come on man like that's not that's not vouching for us whereas like you know you look at a person like steve Rinella, meat eater i'm sure yep. a lot of people have heard of it right what he's doing is very beneficial for hunting because he's he's showing people that like hey we all like to eat this stuff. This is like a lifestyle more so than anything else. Like this is, this means a ton to us. If you're eating meat, something has to die. That's just how it works. We'll see in 500 years, maybe that's not the case, but, and he's also, he's also showing that hunting is such an important part of conservation. There's all these, all these benefits that come from hunting that he's showing to the general public because he's made a, a media source that's very easy to consume right so i think that's kind of where that change is coming from is people like him and there's just this general it's almost like uh going back to that you know living off the land like there's there's so many more people that are about you know organic farming or or what you're doing you know like good wholesome kombucha stuff like that like where it's 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 not processed it's not pepsi right like we're kind of venturing away from that a little bit and coming back. So I think that's why we're, why people are starting to accept it more is because they're, they're seeing, and social media helps a lot with that is you, you get to see just how beneficial all these things are. So where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Boulder. Okay. Yeah. So was hunting always a part of your life when you grew up, started growing up and everything? Yeah. Big time. I, my dad, big hunter. And so you were introduced to it at a young age and like everyone around you, did you have anyone around you that was against it? Not really growing up, I would say in my later life here, like my, uh, my, my wife's mom is a big vegetarian and comes from the ethical reasons. Doesn't want to eat meat because it's, it's, uh, she also has some, some stomach stuff, which meat doesn't always help in that case, but a lot of it is ethical. And I feel that now that she sees kind of how I think about it and I've talked to her, I've had in-depth conversations about how important it is to me and I've she knows that I basically take that animal from step A to step Z and and eat it and I've cooked it up for her other kids and at Thanksgiving and everybody loves it so I think I think it's pretty easy to if if somebody has an open mind if you do it right I think it's easy to kind of show them that hey it's not this bad thing it's not like we're just killing animals it's not Bambi so if anybody's just just killing animals in quotes it's like factory farming industrial food yeah yeah because if you lined up a video of a hunter who is respectfully taking an animal versus the processing that goes on for like the big meat factories of the world it's really it's incredible yeah you actually see a lot more respect and humbleness in that hunting side of it definitely cool thing about because what i i like to butcher it myself right i don't know how it goes down in in factory farming but i could assume just it's all about efficiency, right? But like when I'm taking an animal, I'm, I'm being careful 
when you get down to the bones, right, you're, you're trying to get as much meat off of that thing as possible. And like, okay, maybe I can't make this into a steak, but I can make it into burgers. I, I want as much meat as possible. So it's, it's much more ethical and, and respectful. And, um, has it been a while since you watched a factory farming video? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't I, like, to I wish I had all. the capacity to bring it up. We got to do that in future episodes, but it's, Imagine this. They have the cows and they hang them up by their bottom two feet. And then a guy who is like in a plastic coated outfit with a plastic face mask will come with a chainsaw and they're probably hung and separated by just a couple feet. And they just come on a conveyor belt and they just cut right down the rib lines or cut right down whatever section with big chainsaws. And it's just literally a bloodbath. <laughs> yeah. See, and it's just, boom, carousel going around, going around. I mean, there's no attention to this animal. There's no protocol of gratitude. There's, yeah. I don't, I mean, I'm sure they're going for some sort of efficiency because they want to make money, but I don't think they're taking the love and care to carve an animal. No, no, <laughs> definitely not. not See, would you rather have that or would you rather have an animal that for, you know, if you're talking about like a, take a bull elk, right? in Colorado they have point restrictions so you have to you have to kill you can't kill one below a certain age right so this animal gets to live how it lives um whether you want to call that animal a lot of animals have brutal lives especially in in winter but they get to do what they want it's they have freedom you want to take that animal that gets to live to 3 or 4 years old and then gets killed very quickly usually it's 10 to 15 second process as opposed to an animal that's i think animals are much more self-aware than we give them credit for 100 percent. i think those cows know they are in a place i mean they it it would have to be impossible for them not to get some sense of what's happening to them and they're there for you know they're sometimes they're there for a month before they finally get finished off and it yeah i mean it's just like it's sad, man. And like I'm, I'm saying, like for you sad. hunting and people listening here from Colorado, they're probably like, well, of course, Will. You guys all grew up around hunting. For me, it's the only hunter examples I had would be like someone's uncle that went deer hunting once in a while, but it always sounded like just kind of having beers mm-hmm. with the buddies kind of vibe, getting away for the weekend. And then I'd have my friends that would shoot birds with BB guns in the mm-hmm. yard. And I did that as a kid, but at some point I was like, okay, this is kind of mean. We're just killing the birds and we're not doing yeah. anything with it. And so I kind of had a period where I was, didn't know what I felt about hunting because I'd never had a good example of how it was done or the respect that went into it or what it provided. I saw a video on factory farming when I was in college in my philosophy class, and that was it. I went vegetarian for five years. Yeah, I was like, I can't do it. And then as I transitioned back to eating meat, I kind of went through this journey of like, okay, well, how can I do this the most respectfully? And then I moved to Colorado and started meeting people who hunted and it changed my whole perception of it. Well, and see, I have a lot more respect for folks like you that did that, right, and saw that and wanted to make a change and didn't want to participate. Like, I, I think you and I are, or myself and a person that is a, a vegan or a vegetarian that has has seen those videos and has made the choice that they don't want to partake in that. I think me and you are much closer than me and that person that just eats meat and doesn't think about what they're doing or the worst is if they eat meat and they don't accept hunting 
right? Because that's right. Yeah. First off, it's just against complete. hunting, and then I know people like that. Yeah, and it's just, I don't know where they're standing. It's hard to get into it with them, but it's like, yeah, if you eat meat, but you're against hunting, how does that work? Yeah. Well, it's like, well, but those animals are are raised to die. It's like that. That doesn't seem. That seems ethical or makes it seem worse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's tough, right? Because I just recently heard a stat where, like, if everybody in America shot one deer this year, there would be no more deer because oh, there's there's a lot more humans than there are animals, and that's the that's the tough part. The, that's the tough thing about living nowadays, right? Is I just think there's way too many goddamn people on this earth for Whew. any logical solutions of any of the big problems that we have. But so it's like you can't have everybody hunting, right? Otherwise, there'd be no animals. But you also like we're at the point where we probably couldn't feasibly do like everybody eating you know, vegetables, because then we'd be, again, we'd be taking, we'd have to cut into all these animals' habitats, right, to, to be able to feed everybody strictly on corn or soy or whatever it would be. So we're kind of in a situation where it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. But I do think you got to be aware of what you're participating in either way. And it's just, it's tough when you get to that point because you're like, man, it's uh, food it's with a, this amount of people is tough. <laughs> it almost becomes being too smart for your own good, right? You can yeah. talk yourself into just killing yourself, essentially, because you're like, everything I do has a negative impact on other things in a way. Yeah, I. the problem for me is that I like I love chicken. I love eating chicken, mm-hmm. and it's two ninety nine at the pound at the grocery store. I'm not – I don't know, like, what else I'm going to do to eat. Being a vegetarian was – Definitely the most inconvenient, but also probably one of the more challenging things I've ever done in my life because not only do you just have societal constraints of, on a basic level, your buddies poking fun at you because you don't eat meat and you're just Mm -hmm. a 19-year-old kid, and then people always wanting to define you. You know, they almost try and catch you. Like, you go out to dinner and it's like, Mm -hmm. I'm a vegetarian, so I'm going to order this. And you're like, oh, you know they cook that butter and bacon fat or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like, all right, dude, you know. So people policing you for it. But then... All the processed vegetarian foods now, the morning stars. I I gained 30 pounds as a vegetarian. I was yeah, way really? less healthy than I am now. Huh. Definitely. Because I was always hungry because I wasn't getting enough protein. And I was subsidizing that with just carbs and junk food or hyper-processed, soy-based, vegetarian, quote-unquote, food that was usually in the frozen section. And mm-hmm. you make the little fake chicken nuggets or you make the fake ribs. Which can be very good, by the way. No, they're good. It's fine. <laughs> it's just, but it's not, that's not, as like we're talking about, you try and eat more naturally, you try and eat that like whole food mentality of, and that's just impossible as a vegetarian. I mean, yeah. at least for me at that time, needing, you know, I was an athlete, needed a lot of calories. I'm sure someone listening could say, oh, I could draw you up a great plan, but it wasn't convenient as a young kid. And I didn't have a ton of money to be doing this elaborate diet. So it was just very difficult to maintain healthy. When I came back to eating meat, within six months, I had lost all that weight and just felt way better. More energy, just felt good. So I know my body likes it. But yeah, we're kind of in a trap because it's, what do you do? Do you go hunt for your own stuff every winter? Which I could definitely do a better job of. But it's also like you're a part of this system, right? So yeah. it's it, I am going to the grocery store to get stuff. And there is very affordable 
meat products there. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm going to get an elk when I go hunting. I've never even hunted before. This would take me all this training and stuff. So I get, like, I'm not anti-grocery store, I guess. It's just what you're talking about with you start looking into the future and say, how is all this sustainable and how is this? There's almost to the point where you realize, yeah, existing is unethical. Like yeah. for us to continue to go the way we go as humans, sorry, the cow's got to be processed, yeah. right? And we start to get the, you know, we're emotional beings, so we feel bad for the cows. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, what's the alternative? The alternatives sound crazy, although maybe they won't in 500 years, but it's like, all right, so we all eat crickets? Like, is that what we're going to do? Yeah. Is that our vibe? Certainly our history is with eating meat. How is that going to affect our bodies? Yeah. We don't know. Well, and how do we know that crickets aren't some, you know, we, we only have assumptions to operate off of that even like with plants, right? I mean, there's there's studies out there that show that there might be some sort of consciousness that exists within plants you know you go to a tree with and fire up a chainsaw there's a a chemical reaction that happens within there how do we know i mean all we have to operate on is that we have this certain type of consciousness and we try to apply that to other things and like we look at a tree and be like oh that doesn't act the same as we do but we don't know that it's not some in somehow self-aware i think i think the big thing that kind of where I've gotten to with this whole thing because I I really do debate this in my head all the time just driving to work because <laughs> I want to be I want to be on you know I want to be on the right side of history I don't want to be doing immoral stuff I want to try to live as as good as I can live and, like someone's watching yeah exactly yeah. and so where I've kind of gotten to is the price of life is life because even if you're a vegetarian what we're seeing nowadays is one of the biggest killers of animals one of the biggest takers of life the the thing that is contributing probably most of all to this mass extinction event that we're seeing right now is habitat loss and and part of that is is global warming or or climate change so no matter what you do i mean you think about it like if you're buying if you're buying a a bag of chips right that bag of chips needs a cornfield that cornfield, corn, you know, cornfields in the way we see them for mass production are not natural. And it's cutting into, especially like the, the Eastern Plains, that, that high, high brush prairie, that, that's a, where most of the corn comes from. It's such a different landscape than it was 200 years ago. So like we've contributed, you're, you're already killing, if you want to say it that way you're you're killing animals that way because we took out the forests and cleared all the land so no more habitat yeah Yeah. and then you're getting that needs to be processed in a factory again that takes up space which is there was some animals home there and then it needs to be transported well how many animals are killed every year uh, on roadways it's massive so it's not just like uh, you can get into semantics there and and really really just get into a in, into a stalemate with your own self <laughs> thinking about that but uh i've just kind of gotten to the point where it's like you know that's unfortunately that's just a, a rule of the universe i guess as it is now it's not to say it can't change in the future lab grown meat whatever but as it is right now it just seems like life the price of life is other life and that's unfortunately that's just how it was made i interviewed this guy from the palisade sectory and he was we were talking all about the consciousness of bugs and, and things mm. like that. Dan Bean is his name. If you've never been over there in Palisade, it's a fascinating place. Uh, but they study insects and things like that. I didn't really, I was like, are insects conscious? Who would, who would know? 
And he's like, did you ever try and kill a fruit fly? Yeah, they always run away. He's like, yeah, because they're yeah. aware that you're trying to kill them. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So they do have some sort of self-preservation at the very least. I think the way humans are different and what how we're kind of entrapping ourselves is we've never really had the privilege or no animal has to consider their emotional feelings before exactly. their survival instincts. Mm-hmm. We have it so cush now that we can just sit around and sort of debate our own ethical choices over the years. But as a modern day human, what are you going to do? Again, like, what are you just going to kill yourself because of it? Yeah. It's, you have to keep working towards a solution, but what that is, God only knows. You seem pretty pessimistic. You said in your, in your monologues, mass extinction currently happening and that you believe there's too many people on earth. So the humans aren't being mass extinguished. We're thriving, but Correct. we're just crushing everything else. And that's actually not, I mean, there are some other animal species that greatly benefit from what we've done. I mean, you look at white-tailed deer, you even look at like predators, right? Like raccoons, foxes, coyotes. There's never been as many of them on earth as there are now. And it's because they thrive off of, you know, what we do, like especially white-tailed deer, agricultural fields. Uh, I mean, you look at snow geese and, and Canada geese, a lot of waterfowl are, have heavily adapted to ag fields and stuff like that. So it's, it's not, I, and that's that's where I get back into the just get into these stalemates, right? Because it's there's always a a point and a counterpoint to every like literally every philosophical debate that you want to have. There's a I, I feel like there's a moral and there's a a point and a counterpoint to that, and because it's like yeah, it's great for Canada geese what we're doing. Definitely not great for stellar's eiders up in alaska because they need ice and and all that stuff so i don't know it's just coyotes <laughs> i read somewhere that they live in every major city yeah like coyotes have thrived yeah. uh, just living off our waste and things like that i guess and i can't remember whether it was the book sapiens or guns germs and steel but it talked about this and it was kind of like depending on the moral way you look at it because if you just look at, at the success of evolution by the quantity of it, then you know humans are one of the most successful in, in terms of mammals, and then chickens, cows, pigs, and goats. Mm-hmm. And so you would look at them evolutionary on a quantity level and be like, those are the four most successful animals. Wow, look yeah. how great they're doing. But then when you look at the quality aspect, I mean, chickens, there are so many because we have them all in cage. It's like because yeah. we're harvesting them all and, and raising them. So how do you look at it like how do you look at success from an evolutionary level yeah in terms of numbers they're they're killing it like they're around they're going to be around but individually they live horrible lives collectively they're thriving that's a that's a weird that's got to be like uh like an evolutionary like paradox like the the chicken right because they evolved a trait that made them taste so good that like perpetuates their death but we keep them alive just long enough to it you know they're yeah it's like it's a it's a paradox because yeah well, it should be the thing that drives them to extinction but it keeps them alive true because of their value yeah and it's my understanding that humans as we domesticated a lot of the plants and animals we were very selective so mm-hmm. we would only eat the watermelons in the wild that were sweeter and then we would take their seeds and the ones that weren't as sweet we wouldn't replant them same with animals i'm sure we're taking the, you know, breeding the ones that taste the best, look the best, mm-hmm. and kind of weeding out those those other ones. 
what do you think about human intervention and this stuff? I mean, wolves are about to be back in Colorado. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I think they're releasing them, what, in Aspen, I saw, or mm-hmm. that area? like Vale. Uh, I think, yeah, it was, I thought I saw it was, uh, yeah, Vale, the county, whatever Vale is in, and yeah. Summit so County. Like, yeah, Summit County and then south. Yeah, I, They'll just stay in the county though, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they'll just, they're just, yeah, yeah, they'll hang stay out right there. there. You know, so what, how long do you think before they're up on the Mesa? A year, two years? I think it's the the whole wolf thing is going to be interesting, right? Because um, I think they, I think the last I heard was that they did get the designation that it was an experimental population. Do you know? So, so basically, like, tell me I, what you know. So I think all I know is they're coming from Oregon, right? Yeah, they are. And yep, they're Oregon being brought down. December eighth is when they're they're getting. I think they're supposed to be bringing them down. I think that they got the designation as an experimental population and definitely not an expert. I've just heard, you know, tried to read and, and talk to some people about this. Um, I think that they got the designation as an experimental population, which will give Colorado parks and wildlife, fish and wildlife folks more leeway with how they manage them. Right. So I think if they didn't get that designation, then a, a rancher was having uh, a pack of wolves just go to town on his his cattle there would be a lot more um roadblocks for him to get those wolves removed i think that's how it's going and i think that's a good thing for the wolves um, because i think it's going to give like wolves are so misunderstood right and as a hunter the the group of hunters are probably the hardest and 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 ranchers as well, obviously, because they're directly affected. But I think hunters can be very can be mes- misled pretty easily on wolves because there's the classic case of Yellowstone, right? When uh, when wolves were introduced into Yellowstone, you know, I think in the Madison Valley there, there was something like fourteen thousand elk. And then, you know, the next year, directly after uh, wolves were introduced, there were 7,000. It was some crazy number like that. Well, that's that's used against wolves quite often. And it's it's kind of like a correlation doesn't always equal causation type thing because they had an extremely brutal winter that year. They also had like, it was a big overpopulation of elk. So there, was, there were other factors that contributed to the elk population declining. But where I'm going with that is I think especially amongst hunters and ranchers, like people just think like um, they're going to come in here and they're just going to kill all the elk, right? And, and there's not going to be any elk. They're going to take the, the population, the elk population up on the mesa and it's going to be zero, you know, after five years. Well, I've looked this up and, you know, if you look at a, a pack of wolves of 10 wolves, right, they'll typically kill about 100 elk every year. That's nothing if, if it's in, especially if it's like if you're, extrapolating that over like the whole G-Mug, right? The Grand Mesa, Uncompahgre Plateau area, which is where they've been talking about talking about maybe releasing them north of Gunnison, which would be in that big national forest area there. There's so many elk in there. They're, they're, they're going to be affected. Like there's going to be, especially in certain areas, there's going to be less game. There's going to be you know, it's, it's going to change things. It's, they're going to change the landscape. They're super successful, successful predators, but it's not like they're going to just wipe everything out. So I think that, I think that they will eventually make it up onto the Mesa. 
I think the Mesa is going to be a place where they're going to run into some trouble just because there is so many, there's so many leasing, uh, you know, cattle grazing rights up there. They're probably going to run into some, some conflicts. There's probably more cattle than elk up there. Like I know there's only 400 moose on the Mesa. I don't know if they have a count of how many elk or whatever, but most tracks I see are cattle tracks. Yeah, no, exactly. So it's going to be tough for them to make it up there, but I think they'll eventually make it up there. But I don't know, like the thing in Idaho, like this past year I went hunting up there and uh, all we heard before we went up there was wolves have gone in there. There's no elk. Don't, don't even go up there. It was, it was, there were so many elk. I've never seen that many elk in one concentrated spot. Mm. So like, I think there's a lot of myths around them. I, I also think that there's a lot of propaganda the other way where they don't do anything. They, they never kill any cattle. So it's somewhere in the middle, just like everything. So that's what I read was, and this was kind of showed the disconnect because vote, we voted on this, right? Or Mm -hmm. Colorado residents. So you had a lot of people who lived in the city and this again, this is from what I was reading, who are voting for the release of the wolves. And a lot of people in the countryside, especially ranchers, were voicing against it because they wouldn't have the right to kill the wolf should it mm-hmm. threaten their flock. Mm-hmm. My understanding was that was reversed, and that's how it ended up getting passed, and people felt better about it. So ranchers now do have the right to defend their flock should a wolf attack it can't remember if you said the opposite or if that's what you read as well no yeah that's that's okay. what i heard I, yeah. but it was you know because it got it got passed what two or three years ago now and then i think it i think uh, governor jared polis wanted to get because it initially had that experimental population designation in there in the law i think and then jared polis was trying to get that and some other environmental groups were trying to get that changed and I don't think it ended up going through. So it still has that experimental population designation, which is, you know, gives, I don't, I don't think that ranchers can kill them. I think they still have to call like CPW or, or a wildlife oh, really? officer. I'm pretty sure. So if I, they see a wolves like encircling their peeps, they can't defend. I don't, I don't know. There's probably some, got to get a great Pyrenees. There. Yeah. Going to see exactly. some badass mountain dogs. Yes. Yeah. Coming along, man. I was, I was up on the Mesa one time. Those things are so badass. I I was sleeping in my tent. It was like four in the morning. There was we had driven up this road and there was a flock of sheep that we had passed through and you know, I had four or five of those dogs guarding it. Well, we you know, I'm laying in my tent, four in the morning, I hear coyotes. It's like a movie in my head. I hear coyotes, clearly can hear the sheep. This is all happening probably four hundred yards away from me. Hear the coyotes, they're yipping. I, the next thing I hear is the sheep kind of bawling. The next thing we hear is the great Pyrenees barking. And you can like literally hear throughout this forest soundscape, you know, it's all dark. So I can't, can't see anything, but I, I see it all in my head. And all of a sudden you hear the Pyrenees kind of like chasing the coyotes away. The coyotes finally fade off. They're not yipping anymore. And then the great Pyrenees kind of fade off. And and it goes back to silent. It was the craziest experience. They're you know. huge. Giant. I have a 70-pound pit bull wow. who I think is kind of tough. Yeah. And we went to a wedding in Wyoming, and we took him with us. It was on a ranch, and mm. they had a Pyrenees on the ranch. He was retired. He was old, like 13 years old. But he was probably like 120 pounds, just massive. Like standing up was almost to the tailgate of my truck, you know, mm. like just looking up and in. 
and I was terrified of my my pit bull interacting with him because yeah. I was like I just never until you see them like you don't really understand. Or have you ever seen the bear dogs up in Alaska? I don't think so. Super crazy bears up there, and mm-hmm. uh, so when they do walks through the woods, they have dogs that are literally trained to sniff out bears mm-hmm. and then just harass the bears to go away. So they clear the really? area. If you were riding horseback, it would just follow along and circle around you. If you're hiking, same thing, but it sets a perimeter Mm -hmm. and any bear that it finds or gets close, it'll just go buck nutty. And these, like, this is the kind of dog that when you meet it, it comes up, smells your crotch and you're like, oh, hey buddy. And he makes it very clear. He's not your friend. Yeah. It's amazing what these dogs can do. I'm here to do work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wild what, what dogs are bred to do and like how it just kind of naturally, comes about uh, i have a i have a beagle uh, he's part beagle he's kind of a mutt but you know beagles are traditionally bred to be like hound dogs and uh, rabbits specifically and i've never taken him hunting you know he's he's a he's a lap dog big old teddy bear but i took him out to moab one year and we were just camping out there and you know we're setting up camp and all of a sudden i hear this and i had never seen him do this before He's he's chasing this rabbit and like I'd never heard him bay like that, but that's what they're supposed to do when they get locked onto a to a rabbit and he's just letting loose. It was it was like, man, these these dogs are just they're bred to do that. I'm sure like there's part of those bear dogs up in British Columbia that it's just inherent. Like you almost you got to train them a little bit, but it's kind of just like what they're bred to do. They're bred to do it. Yeah. I just got back from Italy mm-hmm. and it's kind of the opposite terms of intensity but i went truffle hunting Mm, and you use the dogs to find the truffles yeah and they almost look like little poodles i don't know what breed they were because most of it was in italian but they're just very non-threatening little kind of yappy dogs and they'll be in the cage because they're very excited but you get out into the forest and release them and start walking and they just hit the ground running nose to the floor and they'll find a truffle that's hidden a foot under the under the forest and start digging it up and then the challenge of the hunter is to get there before the dog either eats it or breaks it. Really? Yeah, because you want the truffle, like chefs want truffles to be intact, not damaged, because apparently it's easier to shave, easier mm. to display. And, you know, you can sell a truffle like this big for hundreds of dollars. Wow. Like they're not, it doesn't have to be that big. But what's funny is how they train those dogs to do this is that the second they're born, the first taste that they get is the truffle because they take. Uh, they either rub a truffle or use oil and they put it on the the mother's nipple. Mm. So when they're feeding, they're tasting and smelling the truffle from the moment they first come out. And that's how they're introduced. And then there's some behavioral training, obviously, as you go along, but that's how they get the nose for it and the scent for it and craving it incessantly. I mean, these dogs wouldn't stop. Little energy balls roaming around the forest digging. And it's actually a challenge to keep up with them to try and get to all their holes. That's crazy. That's that's so smart. pretty neat. Yeah. So when you're truffle hunting, is it do you find a lot of them because they're so expensive, or is it just more so hard to find like a intact one? You can find a lot of them in like on private property, especially mm. if you go into the major hunting areas. Let's just say it was Grand Mesa National Forest. You know, it'd be highly competitive. I mean, mm. these are expensive. You have professional hunters that are going. You have these quote unquote turf wars between people. There was just an article in CNN I saw while I was on my trip actually that. 30 dogs were killed 
in this like truffle hunter war because yeah because it's territorial you know right you can make a ton of money and the truffles apparently come back the same place every year Mm -hmm. so in theory if you find a good spot like every year it's only i think a two-month window for the white truffles black truffles are a little different yeah so people are very guarded about their spots and if you're just some random guy coming through like there is a truffle hunting mafia you know in certain parts that will police this in this case they poison they i think it was poison meatballs Gosh. they fed to the dogs to just kill all the dogs to send a message of our don't, turf don't get out of here us. man leave it up to italy to even have a truffle mafia it was kind of a cool experience that that would be awesome because they do that with uh like pigs too right they have truffle pigs they have truffle pigs that do it the problem i guess with the pigs is that they're just insane yeah they're even worse than the dog in terms of eating the truffle and destroying it yeah yeah pigs are very successful yeah well i mean shoot man you that's a whole whole nother ethical dilemma right like with with the pigs especially because we're starting to see that you know they're very intelligent animals just very self-aware but i mean you go down to texas and you know they're doing crazy stuff to get rid of those pigs. the helicopter helicopters right? <laughs> i'm surprised they don't use freaking drone strikes on them yet <laughs> but uh just being that it's texas but most of the time they're not eating them right they're just kind of leaving them out there but they are pigs down there getting to the point where they're just destroying wildlife they're messing up farmers crops like to a point where it's it's beyond like the cat the the horses out of the barn door like there's no controlling them no matter how many you kill right and it's like where does that come in you know because like we humans i think have kind of gotten to the point where we we can't put everything back to being natural right or quote-unquote natural like buildings the cities that we've made the ag fields all these things it's not like you can just reverse this stuff so we've kind of gotten to a point where we're we're the shepherds if you will of the natural world and whether you think that that's our place or not it doesn't matter because i believe that it is. I mean, there's so many species nowadays that are just hanging on. I mean, you look at salmon, especially up in the Pacific Northwest. They're literally just alive because of us, right? Because we're we're stocking those rivers full of salmon. We're building things for them to the the salmon elevators to get them up these dams and stuff like that. Really? They would, we have those? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, it's like a yeah, it's like a, a salmon, salmon elevator escalator. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, but um. I mean, they're not very effective, and they still very much disrupt the the of breeding course. habits of them. But yeah. trying to do the best we can. But anyway, we're we're at a point where we have to be those shepherds, right? So, and with that, right, with being a, a manager, with being a somebody that is like, we have to take ourselves out of that. We we can't look at the individual. We have to look at the population of all these animals, right? And like in the in the pig situation, right? That's that's a pretty messed up thing to, especially if you just imagine if you were doing that to humans, obviously that's horrifying. You're doing it to pigs. The, there's obviously, I don't think anybody could look at taking a helicopter and gunning down all these pigs as something that's necessarily like moral, no, right? Yeah. But is it ethical? I think it probably is because I mean, you're, you're looking out for all these other animals that, you know, don't necessarily have the control anymore or, or, you know, they, they would be 
toast without us. So it's a very interesting discussion. This sounds like a great reasoning for aliens to start taking out humans. <laughs> I know. Well, you, know, you know, is it is it moral? No. Is it ethical to all the other people, other animals on Earth, to downsize humans? Yeah, I maybe. Mean, <laughs> yeah. Did you ever read the um, Dan Brown book Inferno? I haven't. No. Okay. I mean, it's, it was a good book, but basically the concept of it is uh, the this billionaire mastermind guy creates this virus that he releases and basically infects one in three people in the world and it doesn't like nobody notices it but what it does is it makes or i'm sorry no it affects everybody you know it's 100 percent contagion rate but it makes one out of three people infertile so eventually like over time the population just goes down mm. i i kind of feel like that would be the sounds like a good conspiracy theory <laughs> I, you know hey well, what do you think for the future of humanity i mean if we keep populating we have to rely more on the agricultural revolution let's say like dedicating this uh these fields and land to growing food harvesting animals i mean that would be very difficult again unless we come up with some new food technology or decide to eat bugs that are easier to raise like we how do we go backwards right yeah it's it's really difficult so are we just gonna use all earth and then probably move to a new planet i don't know man i mean obviously it's I mean, I, th- me, but I think that's going to happen in stages. I, yeah. I feel like the cities here are going to keep growing, all that sprawl. I mean, I think we've still got some more time, but you're going to see like a complete reduction of nature. And then at some point, they're going to start trying to put humans on other planets. Yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, the, the question is, uh, will we get to the point where we can destroy all of nature? I, I don't know. I see... Earlier, you said I'm a pessimist, and I, I would say, like, with certain things I am, but I I feel like with other things, I'm very much an optimist and maybe, like, a, you know, a, a, an idealist or, or just straight-up delusional. But I think uh, – I do think that humans will figure it out. I mean, like, we figure everything out. That's that's the, that's the one thing that's allowed us to succeed so well, and it – has got us to this point but i do think that we'll probably figure it out i I think a lot of humans are procrastinators too so it'll probably come down to the final to the (laughs) 11th hour but yeah if we don't drop a bomb on ourselves first yeah yeah we'll see what happens one of the things i think that would be great for humanity is for more people to go outside because i did not did you grow up camping yeah you did your, mm-hmm. your family was go- doing all this stuff so for you you always had this appreciation for the balance of life for me growing up in an east coast society it was all very merit driven obviously and we didn't go camping mm-hmm. i mean we didn't really do all that i was right outside of a major city uh there was less connection with outside of course as a kid you play outside but you don't necessarily establish that connection as a young adult once you get past being a small kid And it wasn't until I came to Colorado that I felt like I got the balance of my life back, especially with so much Mm. consumerism and crap. And we think we need, like our whole life is just with desire after desire after desire. And then you go out backpacking with everything that you have in your backpack and you're kind of forced to the reality of, to, to understand that you don't need much. And you're forced back into a lifestyle where your survival needs are trumping your other emotional needs and your desires. So you are really happy just to have that warm meal. You are really 
super grateful when you realize you have a stove in your tent and you can get that warmth. Yeah. Right. You are brought back to these basic just understandings and really staring into a campfire is the only connection we have to our ancestors millions of years ago. Yeah. Because that's how they survived. And when you sit around that campfire, you're doing that exact same reverence and practice. Yeah. And you kind of get out of this consumer and we all know that feeling of going for a backpack and then even if it's just a day or two and then coming back into the marketplace, let's say, like coming yeah. back to society and you're like, holy crap, all this stimulation, all this you know, hubbub in my mind. Like I didn't need any of that. So it's interesting, right? I think more people sort of getting that and just bringing the balance. Like, dude, it's out of control. I mean, holidays pointed out to me every year. Like we are crazy. Like yeah. with all the stuff, <laughs> it's just wild. Yeah, It's yeah. all about just buying, 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 consuming, consuming. It is. I think the there's a couple couple of things here. First off, I think the most important part about like backpacking or camping, especially backpacking, because you're you're so self reliant, you don't have anything given to you, right? You can if you have if you're camping in an RV, you know you got water, you got heat, you got all these all these things. But when you go out backpacking, there's a couple things that I've noticed. And then the number one thing is I have so, so many, uh, like I think so much less, like I, I don't think about a lot, right? Which I feel like here, I just, I'm always thinking about stuff. I mean, you're thinking about work, you're thinking about, you know, whatever bills. But I think the reasoning for that is like, you want water? Okay, go get it. Go filter it. It's a, it's a 10 minute process to get water. Okay. And that's not even like your full water for the day. So make sure that you're conscious of it. You want food. Okay. That's a 10 minute process. You got to heat the water up. Okay. You got to go to the bathroom. Like that's a whole thing. So there's like all these, there's like all these, uh, pathways to, to keep you busy out there. And it's like a, a full day. You're actually earning it. Right. You're, it's not just like, whereas like in society where you got all your things taken care of, waters at the snap of a finger food you can stop by mcdonald's whatever it just gives you so much more time to to think about all this stuff which i think a lot of times too much thinking can be a bad thing right i mean that's where you get into the situation of where you start thinking about okay well all all our food comes from it's either this or that so there's no good way of doing it that's all thinking too much right that's all (laughs) like it's it's good. It's a good and a bad thing. Yeah. You know, cause there's good things from thinking those things out, but it's also for your own mental health. I think you do need some of those days where you're just almost like work, just diving into building something. Like if you, if you have a project at the house that you gotta, you gotta do it. Like it's, you just think so much less because you're, you're focused on something that you need. And I think that's super important. And I think a lot of there's, there's a, that's so much different than being at work and thinking and it's need know, versus want. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, like yeah. I need to go fill up my water versus I want to go get a beer later exactly. or I want, want this or that or that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Cause like exactly like you said, the time is spent worrying about your survival. And I think so life has kind of gotten too easy Yeah. in a way. It has. I right? think, I think it definitely has. And it's going to, I don't know whether it's going to get easier or harder with AI. That's another thing that really kind of I think is wild I was talking to my girlfriend about this last night I just saw that one of the bands Kiss I think Mm -hmm. they're going to now do hologram concerts so if I was understanding it right you're going to 
you would go to the concert or perhaps watch it on TV, but it, it's not actually them. Mm-hmm. You would watch a hologram of that. Yeah. And so I'm watching a news show that's reporting on this and, and they're commentating on it and kind of joking around. And one person says, how long do you think it is until the music industry just creates a hologram of someone who doesn't exist, then they become famous, right? Yeah. So you just create an artist, you create the music, you know, someone makes the music, but you attribute it to this fake hologram character mm-hmm. and they look really real and personable, but they're a hologram, right? As technology improves. So now you basically have an AI artist hologram who people will go either go to see or just pay for a concert online or mm-hmm. listen to. And now entertainment companies realize, well, we don't actually even need a human Humans. being, yeah. right? And in a capitalist society, a, a human is only as valuable as how much money they can make you or produce for you. So our our value just keeps going down. Like all the you know, smaller jobs are going to be taken up by AI. My career writing probably going to be, I mean, Sports Illustrated just released yeah. their own, their first AI written article, which sucks, right? And so now Crazy. you get to a point where entertainment can be made by robots and just so where are humans value in the future? Like yeah. the everyday person is going to have such less value yeah. as AI and automated things start to take over. And that is a scary thought. I know. I know. Hold Hold on. Just... Yeah, go for it, man. All right. The, what were we talking about? We had a good. It was a good time for a pee break, anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were just talking about the AI and. Oh God. Yeah. What do you think, man? Are, Am I overreacting? You never know, man. I mean, I, I'm, people tell me I am, but then I, I, I tell them it's like, look, I work in an industry where it's happening. Yeah. Like I'm watching it happen, and I have writer friends. Tim Wenger, I've had him on the podcast. He uses AI as a writer. Mm. You know, he uses it as a tool, uh, which is great for him, and I think he's smart to do that. Mm. So writers are using it. The magazines are already testing it. So why wouldn't they do it? Yeah. Why wouldn't they? I don't know. Uh, I mean, have you? did you read that uh, Sports Illustrated? Well, because they also came out and, and they got busted because they had already had some articles that they hadn't disclosed were AI, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, have you read any of them? Like, are, can you tell that I, it's AI, or is it like... I mean, I can read them and say... I don't believe a professional writer put professional thought into this, but I don't think it's going to matter, honestly, long-term. Like whatever small little bugs you can find, most journalism now is pretty straightforward anyway. The days of the long five, six, seven, ten-page magazine stories are gone. Mm. Magazines are barely around anymore. Nobody reads long form on the internet. Trust me, I've tried. That's my favorite thing to write. When I started my writing career in 2010, I had some success pitching long form back then, but very little. And now it is very difficult. There are very few publications Mm -hmm. that do it. It's obviously very competitive. And I always joke around this, like with with travel writing, you know, we get so many people in the travel writing industry that just want to catch a shooting star for a year. They discover it, they realize they can get funding to travel, and they put on this song and dance for a year, and then they burn out. And But they're able to do that because travel writing has become very easy in the sense that it's the top five things to do in Honolulu, Mm -hmm. the top five camping companies, uh, the top best things to do in Palisade. It's very list-oriented. You don't need to be a professional writer to write that. Mm -hmm. You don't need to create a narrative. You don't need to tell a story. The whole point is to break out your article into five bullet points and just list them. It's not complicated. In that sense, professional writer has already been infiltrated by people who aren't actually writers but can pull this off. That's happening more and more in journalism. 
and an AI can write a list. In fact, a lot of travel writing is just regurgitated anyway. Yeah. So I went to Italy. I'm going to write a story on that. That's some firsthand reporting. That's great. I mean, a lot of the content you'll see in very big influential magazines, you can just look at it and tell. It's like the best beaches in the world. Okay, so did that writer visit every single beach? No, he's crowdsourcing this. Mm -hmm. He's looking online for other lists that have listed beaches. He's going off past beaches that have been nominated as best. Like it all just feeds itself. A lot of AI writing can just pull from that. Mm -hmm. Let's just pull like all the best beaches from around the world from the different lists and then compile them into one master list, things like that they could easily do. And I don't think anybody, especially now, most people don't even get beyond the headline, dude. Yeah. Like, I mean, I hear even like major podcasters say that they'll bring up a story topic and then start getting into it and they'll be like, oh, I actually didn't really read it. I just read the headline. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So we do it all the time mm-hmm. and it's kind of a natural way we get information. It's made headlines way more important, way more influential. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but yeah, I do. I believe that writing can, or the AI can take over writing without people even noticing. Did you read them? Did you? Th- did you? No, I, did, okay. I didn't read them. I just heard about it on a, on a podcast, but I hadn't. I don't really read Sports Illustrated anyway. So, but I th- I think it's interesting. Like going back to the whole list thing, I think it's very self, almost cannibalizing, uh, in a, in the way that um, yes, those articles are the ones that get the most clicks, right, and therefore they're going to be the ones that the advertisers go to, right? Because this is all marketing, especially now is just all database. Like there's, there's no room for, you know, back in the day, like, you, you know, you had a, uh, an ad in a magazine and you were kind of taking a chance because you were like, there's a lot of creative advertising back in the day. And I think that's definitely, I mean, you can just look at most commercials nowadays on TV and they're they're absolute crap, right? Compared to horrible. Some of the old ones like I remember like that was a big thing in the Super Bowl, like you watched the commercials cuz they were funny, they were good, they were creative. But I I think like the whole writing thing like yes, that is where the data goes to, so therefore it's going to make people write those more and that's what companies look for. But I don't think like you're not it's not as impressionable as like an actual story right because if you're if you're taking the time to read the actual story like that investment is so much more than just like clicking on because anytime i click on a headline that says top five places to go in cancun or you know whatever it is you scroll through fast you're not really reading any of the details at least me i'm just trying to see where the locations are right whereas like i have a subscription to outside and you know i'm actually going through and i'm not going to click on as many headlines i'm going to be searching for one that i want to actually read but like i read it and it's like it it builds up like outside like oh the you know it's a it's a magazine they have like all these writers you kind of it's a deeper connection with that media source and that's you know maybe that's making it a bigger thing that it is but like that's a much more i would think that a company could sell much more on that impression than you could the impression of just like a five second just unpersonal just clicking on a link and that's i think that's where it's self cannibalizing because it's it's like all the data is leading it to here but it's actually not as good of a thing 
You know what I'm saying? Does yeah, that make no, sense? I do. I think there's yeah. some counterculture to it as well. Like, you know, when we had all the digital music, vinyl records come back, we're starting to mm-hmm. see, like, have you heard of Trails Magazine Mm-mm. from uh, Ryan Wilchins? I think I'm pronouncing his name right. He's a for- former, b- worked for Backpacker. When all that was bought up, he was very disappointed. He ended up starting Trails Magazine. He lives down in Ridgeway and nice. it's a print publication. He's just lost or launched in the last year or so and he's on issue four. I think it's an awesome endeavor. There'll always be that pushback. But yeah, just sheer numbers. I think that to your point, like the ads are going to be less effective, but you'll just charge less for a larger number of ads. And I mm-hmm. think it'll, for the the bottom line for the company will add up because it's, okay, we could charge a little more for this bigger ad and longer exposure, but we could also just charge a little less, but a thousand more times. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I don't know. I We'll see what happens, but I just, I know the trend is heading that way. We'll, see. <laughs> well but that's the thing you never know because it could i mean it, you know it could be a competition thing i i think it's going to be hard to replace like something like a cormac mccarthy right like just the way he writes things you could never see ai writing that just i mean it would go crazy because of all the long run-on sentences and shit like that and like the obscure description so i, th- I think stuff like that is going to be tough to replace I mean, yeah, the, you know, the top five places to, to go in America for leaf viewing or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I could see that being because it's generic, right? But those get recycled every year anyway, right? It's like there's, I feel like every year these magazine publications, they come out with the same lists oh, yeah. of where you want to go. That's how and, they stay relevant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they charge a lot of advertising for that as well. A lot yeah. of those, uh, not every magazine, but some magazines, you know, the top 20 places to go for 2024 a lot of that's bought and paid for unfortunately yeah i mean i'm sure it all it all comes back around i just have never like i'll never give our society the benefit of the doubt when it comes to money whenever money involved is i know that and i'm not anti-capitalism i think merit is good i'm all for that but there is a consequence to it and it's Mm -hmm. just that people are going to make decisions based on their bottom line all the time we see it in other industries happening i just don't see why ai because of its potential and power, sure, the next 10 years, we're probably fine. But yeah, when are they going to create that musician that doesn't exist? Yeah. People would listen to it. Yeah. Especially the, maybe you're an I generation, we'd be like, dude, what the fuck? This is weird. But people growing up now, but I don't think they'd be freaked out. I think they'd yeah. think it's pretty cool. Yeah. That's that's the tough one, is the, the generations that weren't born. I mean, I noticed, like, I'm not trying to, like make myself seem like I'm so much older than anybody else. But like just between myself and, and Owen, he's, he's like 23, 24 and I'm, I'm 28. Like, and he really was past that line. Uh, like I was right before the line of like no cell phones, ne- no technology, all that stuff. Like I didn't get a cell phone until I was in eighth grade or whatever. He got his cell phone young. And even nowadays, you know, kids are getting iPads when they're four years old. They're just plugged in from day one. I don't think, I think that's going to have profound effect. No, whether it's good or bad is yet to be seen. But it's going to be tough for us to put ourselves in their shoes. And there, there could be some giant changes just because technology, like especially digital technology and like being able to have access to whatever information you want at the push of a button that is such a big change from 50 years ago when you had it's to, accelerating so rapidly yeah 
to a point where like I don't think you can apply any other like you know you can look at other take take a fishing rod or something like that right like the technology it's it's a gradual thing people who were raised with a, a fishing rod had time to adapt to the next iteration whereas like I think the different like the younger generations they're born into this world right so they're I don't think they're gonna have any problem adapting but we might like we might have big issues coming up where it's like there's some crazy new technology I mean you talk about you know some of the neural link stuff and having chips implanted and and augmented reality like that's going to be tough for us to get on board with I know for me especially but with some of these new people like they might not even know that that's an outlandish idea to them it might just seem like oh yeah it's like yeah thing to do yeah it's like for us having cars right like we can't picture a world not having cars right it's like you just get wherever you need to go that's it but 100 years ago you had to ride a horse or whatever both so. my grandparents lived to be 90 99 and i felt bad for them at times because i could see how detached they were from you know the youthful society we have but that was only like of a cell phone difference mm-hmm. right i mean yeah. they grew up they didn't maybe tv came about for them the radio like phones and houses and they passed away a couple years ago. You know, we're we're at where we are. And that was over a long time, 99 years. Now for us, like just the next five years will probably be extrapolated into something yeah. so wild that we can't even imagine. I know. I believe in my meritocracy in the sense that I think I'll be able to figure it out. Like I'm not, although I may be a parent like my, my, my mom does where she'll like get a remote or something and it'll kind of like break and she'll be like, oh, I don't know how to fix this here, Will. You fix yeah, it, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. The cop out kind mm-hmm. of thing. Uh, I could see myself doing that. But yeah, like just voluntarily opting out and being like, you know what? I don't want to live my life online. I mean, feel like social media has been that first big decision for mm-hmm. I'm a little older than you. I'm 38. We weren't indoctrinated with social media all growing up. Like Facebook came out when I was a sophomore in college. Mm. I didn't get my first iPhone until I was 25. So for me, it's different. I've always just been on the outside, like, okay, I get this a thing, but I don't want to live that way because I know a different life. Yeah. Like I knew what I had before. And kids now aren't going to have that. So they're just indoctrinated from step one. Yeah. Right. But that was our first big decision, social media. Do you do you go for it and just go all in because it's the future or whatever your mentality is? Or do you remember a time without it and just keep it in balance? Yeah. It's hard to do. Especially, okay, being a journalist and and your line of work, you're in marketing, right? Where do you want to be to reach your customers? Yeah, social media. I know. So it's 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 complicated. (laughs) It's just like that whole story of the Chinese farmer where he just keeps saying like, "We'll see," right? I know that one. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you just you don't know. I mean, it could could be awesome. You know, things can be good and bad at the same time. Yeah. Right. True. Mm -hmm. You've been talking about that all night, really. It's just, it can be good and it can be bad and, and, and simultaneously, and it's just up to you to interpret how to go in it. But the, the question is, and I've, I've heard other people raise this is like, if I'm not on social media, that hurts me a little bit because I'm whatever, maybe I'm not marketing effectively. Maybe I don't see the latest, whatever, but it's fine. I can get by without social media. Imagine a life where, people were getting things implanted or even just implant maybe is too too big a leap for people. Let's just say there were some type of glasses that you would wear and it would completely enhance 
your intelligence because everything you saw would it would pop up and describe it or you could mentally control it to bring up information you need someone with that kind of technology would have a huge advantage over you oh yeah so if you were to say well you know what i don't really want to wear these glasses that are constantly bombarding me with intel so i'm gonna just pass on that well, good luck getting yeah. a job. Good luck. All these people are going to beat you out. They're going to be so much more advanced than you. Mm-hmm. At some point, if technology merges with humans in that way where it's giving you a boost, let's say, over someone who doesn't have it, now you're in real trouble. Yeah. Because what do you do? Do you adapt or die? <laughs> yeah. I mean, shoot, you just move out in the woods. Even now, imagine not having an iPhone. Oh, yeah. Like I've actually thought about it when I'm camping mm-hmm. and I'm – sitting out in the woods, I say, why do I have a cell phone if it gives me so much stress? Why don't I just get a, a landline at my house? People can call me. If I'm there, I'll answer. If I'm not, I'll get a message. You know, that's a reasonable thing. And why do I need to check my email every two seconds? Da, da, yeah. da, da, da. But if I didn't have an iPhone and access to email and all that, I know I would have lost out on a lot of work. Mm-hmm. People would have been annoyed with me who can't get a hold of me yeah. via work or friends. and fa- Like there is a very societal expectation that yeah. – you're going to have it. And that lack of technology we see in poor communities holds them back yeah. in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. So that's sure. already ha- that's has already happened. Yeah. Especially with the glasses thing. I don't know if I would say no. Because it, like having a having a smartphone and being able to like be like, oh, what was that thing? And then immediately like go look it up. Oh, what was that movie? And like instead of like it driving you crazy and trying to think of a movie like you would back in the day – like for 20 minutes, it's just like nagging at you. You're like, what was that movie called? You just look it up nowadays. <laughs> totally. And that like humans are just, we're curious people. And I think that's a, that's a biological thing that these cell phones have hacked into that, that we want to know. Th- like I personally love podcasts, right? I love being able to, to the point where it's probably like diminishing returns, right? Because I listen to so many of them. I probably just forget more stuff than I actually <laughs> learn from them. But it's like, it's like, I like that feeling of like learning something new in a podcast or something like that. Totally. I would, I would hate not to have that now that I have it. Like it would have been one thing if I never had that. Cause you don't know what you're missing if you don't, if you've never seen it. But, but nowadays it's like, man, I don't know if, if I could like do that for an extended amount of time, you know, going out in the woods is different again, because you're, you're constantly, you're not thinking about you're constantly thinking about stuff that ultimately leads to you not thinking as much right right you're thinking about survival stuff how is your relationship to your phone when you go into the wilderness like what is that feeling for you when you plop it on airplane mode when you hit the trailhead do you do you feel any anxiety about it i don't feel anything like i'm fine you know but it's like it's because it's it i know it's out of reach right it's like if you but if I was in service, you know, if you're ever, every once in a while you're in a spot in the mountains where you get service, you're like, mm, I'll pop it, you know, see, you just yeah. take a look. Oh, I got a couple bars. Let me, let me see how the Broncos did, you know, this weekend or something like that. But I feel that like when I'm like, when I go up to Alaska or something like that and you're flying in, obviously there's no phone service. I don't even really think about it unless I'm getting on you know a mapping thing trying to check where I'm at or something like that but I rarely get anxiety about missing out on stuff but as soon as I get back into civilization where I know I have service 
yeah it's like the you know first thing you do is you're like oh yeah yeah i have a phone you get in the car and everyone's like oh finish the hike and you get in the car and then it's just a silent ride home because everyone checking their email or catching up on everything they missed yep definitely been there man yeah you ever hung out with someone that by accident forgot their phone when they went out for the night you know, I, not that I can think of, but I've I've been that guy. Yeah, I just I went out with a friend the other night, and we were driving on the way, and they were like, patting their pockets, They're like, "Wait, I don't have my phone." Yeah, and I was like, "Congratulations, welcome to welcome back to the world. You're free." Mm-hmm. And it bugged him for a while. I could see he was kind of thinking about it, but adjusting to it. But then would like keep searching. But I swear I put it here somewhere, right? Like just kind of couldn't let it go, mm-hmm. and then. 10 minutes later uh, got up and saw that it had like fallen in the seat and was like, Oh, I found it. And just the relief yeah. was very obvious. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think it had anything to do with the value of the phone. No, I think it was we are like it's the access. I, I do it too, man. I leave yeah. the house and I'm like, but like you, I'm using it as a tool a lot to like listen to things. So mm-hmm. in that sense, if you forget it, it's annoying, mm-hmm. but we, we do have that connection, but this is also why I think the wilderness is such a great balance to just wean you off that for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, I, I get it. I mean, I get the anxiety. That's why they're coming up with all these backcountry charging gadgets. Mm-hmm. I've never seen, like, that always is so funny to me that in the outdoor industry, like, all the solar chargers and mechanisms and everything to, like, keep your phone and computers going. It's, yeah. for me, the whole point is to, to get away from yeah, it. Yes, just not worry about it. Yeah, I mean, when you're out there, I'll, my phone will go five days and I don't even charge it. You're just on it. Yeah. So little. Taking it's pictures nice. with it or something. Uh, it's probably not going to last long, though, because I'm sure with uh, uh, Starlink. Like, yeah, Starlink. That's the internet everywhere. Right? Yep, exactly. So. Where do you guys test your tents when you do all your – because this is your manufacturing facility, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so everything. Do you have a store in town as well? No. Nope. we're out by 24 Road right now. What is this, 31 Road? No, uh, it's 2331 – Interstate, right. Interstate Avenue. Right. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, we're know. basically just west of Twenty Four Road. Just yeah. a couple minutes. Yeah. So this is where all the tents are actually manufactured, right? So we have this shop, and then over at the other shop, they're cut here, and then they're sewn at the other shop. We got, I think, thirty sewing machines over over there. Where's the other shop? Uh, it's over, kind of by, right by Twenty Nine Road there, Twenty Nine and North, essentially. Okay. So of, which one is the better one for? people to come in if they want to check out your tents that would be this one the this one. 2331 interstate okay. avenue yep and you have all the tents on display here when you come in what do you describe to people because i think you and i have worked in tents for a long time so we know there's a lot of times it's laughable when we're comparing new tents because it's like oh this is newsworthy because it dropped like one ounce of weight mm-hmm. and oh just like a little different shape it's just very nuanced mm-hmm. the improvements we see I think a lot of people, let's say they walk into REI, for example, right? And they're just trying to figure out what to buy, how to buy a tent. They have no idea where to start. Mm -hmm. So how how do you guys work to educate people? Like, what do you tell people when they're either getting, you know, how do they, how do they pick tents? Yeah. Well, so, and I will say this just out of transparency, like our tents might not always be the best thing for a beginner, right? If you've never gone out camping, I would say some of our tents, you could definitely run with, but there's a little bit of a learning curve and, you know, without experience in the woods, it might not be the best thing to take out first. But what I will say, like, so when we're trying to educate people, I think the, like, I guess the big selling points of our tents would be 
well, first off, like some of our tents, we have a patent on the zipperless entry, right? So that's that's a big thing. Um, Why do you guys hate zippers? Sand, the war ice. on the zipper. Yep, yep. I mean, they're you know they're good for some things. They're convenient, um, but uh, we f- we feel like we had a pretty solid solution um, to get rid of that. And you know, zippers always fail. That's they get stressful, especially yeah. more in the desert for me because yeah. they get that dust and dirt in them, and mm-hmm. then you you almost break them yourself because mm. they're just a little stuck and you pull too hard and yep. the tab comes off or whatever Grind happens. down the teeth yeah st- stuff like that yeah but yeah i mean I, I guess our education is just uh like i always just tell people like look you gotta take this thing out don't just take it out into the woods and set it up like mess around with it a little bit like it's it's more of like a you know an intermediate level not that there's beginner level tents or expert level tents or whatever but it's i would say like it does take a little bit more experience in the woods to really enjoy the tent i think there are beginner versus more expert i mean freestanding versus non-freestanding a freestanding tent would be one that you can just like you would think about a tent you know setting it up with your poles and once it's set up it's just gonna be there and stand up freely Mm -hmm. non-freestanding meaning you need to You'll, you'll probably have a pole, but you also have to guy it out or stake mm-hmm. it out yep. and create that tension for it to be standing, mm-hmm. which is definitely a learning curve. If you've never done it before, yeah. it's going to take a while to kind of see. I mean, it's not that hard, but just how to get the tension right. And then if you have weather, like how to make sure your stakes don't come out, things mm-hmm. like this. So I think, yeah, there are more beginner-friendly tents for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a good point. Like, I mean, with ours, you know, there are some things with weather, right? Like it's a floorless shelter. Most of them have, uh, are floorless as is we do sell floors for basically all of our tents, but if you just want to take it out as light as it can go, yeah, you, you do want to figure out, you want to have a plan for if, you know, things aren't ideal. Right. And like, People always ask about like water, right? If it's raining, what do you do? It's floorless shelter. I've noticed like if you're on if you're on grass, um, you're not going to get water under under there unless it's going crazy or you're on a super steep slope. But you know we do have floors for them. You can take that out. You can take like a Tyvek ground sheet to put underneath if you want to go super light. You know you can you can do stuff like bushcrafty stuff like with the stoves, right? We we have a customer that loves our biggest stove our big mommy takes it out with our biggest teepee and what he does why he swears by it because it's so light and easy to maneuver what he'll do is he'll dig like a hole um, to put the stove in and what that does is it heats up the ground around the stove uh, and helps retain some of that heat that's a great idea yeah yeah so there's like there's a little bit there can be a little bit more bush crafty skill that can go into them so Yeah, yeah i love that have you guys ever sold your tents at REI? No, Never. no. We we have a good amount of retailers. Where that's a big thing that we're working on this year. We're uh, in Shields nowadays, and then that's kind of the big one. Um, and then we have a bunch of little boutique stores across the country that we sell. Have you and, intentionally avoided REI, or do they just not carry your kind of tent? I think they approached us one time, and I think. Um, I mean, I shouldn't talk too much on it because I don't know 100%, but I I do remember hearing something about them approaching us, and we were kind of hesitant to go into it. So Yeah, I 
I love REI just in the sense it's like I love the outdoors, so why wouldn't I love REI? I mean, just go into the store and mm-hmm. see all your favorite activities going <clears> on, so that's cool. But I've heard it described from industry people as kind of like the pressure that Walmart puts on vendor in the sense that it's like if you get into REI, they can change your business, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're – so a lot of people get to a point where they rely on REI because it's so much a high percentage of their sales and they put such a focus into it that then they get kind of in this relationship where they're dependent upon it and then sort of the stakes flip where obviously REI is not going to lose out, right? So yeah. then they kind of get into these um, sticky situations, let's say. But I don't know if any of that's true. I've never had, dealt with REI firsthand. and. I know they've helped to reach a lot of people to the outdoors. Definitely. Yeah. I I love it too. I mean, and they they definitely have some some good stuff. I had a REI rain jacket for a long time. It was amazing. Yeah. But I I think um you don't always go there. Like we like to think of ourselves as pretty high end, you know, high end stuff that's handmade in America, good working gear and I think with people they go into like summit canyon mountaineering here right they might have some of the same brands as rei but they also have like some super high-end stuff right and they they trust those people you know i've been to rei a time or two where the people don't exactly know what they're talking about um and whereas like if you go into a little niche location you know a little little gear store little outfitter they most of the time know their product and i think that's a getting back to kind of what we were just talking about it being more of a intermediate level tent that's important like you got to have people that that know about it that can properly educate you know whoever's trying to buy it so right i think there's a couple reasons we've kind of stayed away from them what do you see as the benefit for the floorless shelters just a reduction of weight and then not having to wear down a ground sheet or something like that yeah i mean it's uh it's that it's so one of the big benefits that hunters are always talking about um, just, and I think this is due to the time of year that they're out wet, cold, muddy, you don't have to take your boots off. Right. Um, Sometimes, especially in like some of those half dome tents, if you're crawling in, you know, you got to do the whole thing where you get your back in first and then you turn around, take your boots off. It's kind of a, kind of a pain. So, you know, you just have to, you don't have to worry about, like, I think there's a thing to succumbing to the dirt and, like when you have a floor on your tent, you can see any pine needles, any dirt that gets in there and you're going to be like, oh man, this is like, you know, I got to clean this out. So I think there's definitely an element of that. Like just succumb. You don't know that the f- tent is dirty because it's all dirt, right? Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. I never thought of that. So I, I think that's a benefit. And yeah, I mean the weight, the weight savings is a big one. Not um, taking your shoes off is huge. Yeah. Honestly, because especially if you're getting it out of the tent a, a bunch, it's so nice to keep your boots on. Yeah. And not have to worry about it. It makes it so much easier. But you do have to get over the fact that you're putting your sleeping pad in the dirt. I mean, you'll have a little, I usually take a little sheet to put mm-hmm. under my sleeping pad, but gear is more susceptible because you're working on the hard ground. Yeah. So you just have to be careful. And some people just, they won't go camping without a floor. So. Uh, you know we do have options but and the reverse is when you get out of your sleeping bag you have to put your shoes right on instead correct. of being able to get yeah. out of your sleeping bag and like hang out in the the tent with the floor so that is correct yeah there's benefits to it yeah for sure are you going to go winter camping we are yeah i think uh i think we're actually going to go <clears throat> we we got some uh some loner pack rafts from 
alpaca rafts down in Mancus, Colorado. Not sure if you've heard of them, but they make like ultralight pack rafts. And me and my buddy, we're going to go, uh, we're going to go do, uh, just an overnight pack rafting trip, uh, down the Gunnison Gorge, oh, do some sick. fishing. It's like, it's pretty prime time right now, if you know what to catch them on. And so we're going to do that and make a little film out of it. I, I usually try to do one. Make a film? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. This is for Seek Outside, you mean? Or yeah. just personally? Yep. Okay. Seek Outside. We have a, we've released, I don't know, five or six, like, you know, decent sized films. By now it's a project we've kind of started the last two years. Um, oh, really? Where are they? Where can we watch them? On just the website? YouTube. Okay. Yep, what are they YouTube. about? We got a bunch. So we had, uh, so the first one was an ice fishing video. Then we did a turkey hunting video. And then we did a fully self-supported bike packing trip of the uh, Cocopelli. Did a winter camping trip on the Mesa last year where it was like three feet of snow. We And then did a caribou hunt. And we've done a couple other like day trip kind of kind of things. But yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I, I try to get out and do one winter camping trip a year they suck because it's so cold but well they're fun they're humbling god i mean it is cold but there's nothing like the winter wilderness mm. it's just so calm and peaceful no humans around mm -hmm. which i know you love and just the wilderness feels really still yeah. the air is really fresh and cool mm -hmm. i just think it's so relaxing it now is. there are some complications of course yeah it's like it, when you get down to it, it is cold and everything. But usually, like, dig a little fire pit. Mm -hmm. So how do you do it? Like, when you put, like, a floorless shelter on the snow, for example, mm -hmm. if you were to light the snow, the stove, wouldn't your stove just sink because it would start melting away the snow? Or are you digging down to ground level first? No. So it depends on how much snow there is, right? If it's six inches, yeah, you probably just want to clear all the snow out. Um, but on the Mesa, for example, you know, the, yeah. when we went up, we, we dug down to build a fire pit and – we hit ground out. I think it was like four feet. Mm -hmm. So it was cool. We made like a little trench. We had stairs going down. We sat in there, got that us is, out of the wind. Yeah. Super cool. I'll show you a picture after, but that's, you know, you're not going to do that for your whole tent. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So what I've done is uh, typically just snowshoe in, you know, it's, if you're right next to the truck, that's one thing. But like last year I went up and we snowshoed in. So you got snowshoes, just pack down that snow, just do a couple laps around, pack that stuff down pitch the tent and then what i'll typically do is i'll get like a couple i'll usually take like a, a ski polk or a sled with me so you can bring wood in but i'll just oh, take you a gotta tow the wood yeah good yeah. luck finding you're not digging through four feet of snow to find the wood oh exactly yeah that's a big key if anyone's planning a winter trip definitely sled your wood in and yeah. bring dry wood yeah yeah make sure it's dry <laughs> um but yeah I'll, I'll just take like a log and put it under each um set of legs and then it there will be some snow that melts, but you're you'd be surprised how little heat reflects down. Like it's it's a master class in in physics, right? Because you can put, I mean, it'll you'll still get some melting, but it'll be you know seventy degrees above the stove and then twenty below the stove. So you really don't need. It's not like you need like a heat reflective pad to put under there. I just put a couple pieces of wood, and it kind of increases the surface area there, and been fine and you don't have any problem with sinkage or anything like that with your body heat because you've packed it down so well so, yeah and i guess once it melts it freezes pretty quick again so mm. it probably gets oh it kind of turns into like ice a little bit but yeah. like you put pine boughs down and 
<clears throat> kind of create like a little floor under your pad and works pretty good yeah yeah so definitely have to have a winter sleeping bag yes yeah i actually think that's the biggest problem for most people is when they don't enjoy camping because they get cold it's sleeping bag and the sleeping pad Mm -hmm. because if you try and just even in shoulder season if you just take a summer sleeping pad and it gets down into the 40s at night you're going to suffer because all that heat transfer is going to i mean it makes a huge difference to have an insulated sleeping pad oh yeah like night and day big big difference and what a lot of people don't realize is um not all temperature ratings on sleeping bags are the same are created equal you know there's there's definitely there's definitely some bag ratings where you're like oh that's a 15 degree bag and then you know you take it out and you're like i don't know and you're freezing when it's 40 out exactly (laughs) yeah well i mean part of that is you know especially if it's down how you store it you know a big myth of down is that you can't refluff it you you can but a lot of people just don't know that and so they'll just keep taking the old sleeping bag out and it just that down gets compressed and more compressed and more compressed and then what was a awesome 15 degree bag with nice loft 800 filled down turns into a you know a 50 degree bag that's essentially just a sheet of sil nylon or whatever so um not all it's not all created equal that's for sure and sleeping pad yes a lot of people even like yeah shoulder season stuff like if you can have at least a you know a a three you know an f3 temperature rating or insulation rating on a sleeping pad it makes a big difference you know we're so lucky out here too is that we don't get the fire restrictions that the front range has yeah when i lived in denver a lot of times we would go camping and there would be no fire Mm -hmm. and people would stop coming and they i actually had friends that would say like i don't camp without a fire like okay well fair enough but we're lucky because we don't really have the, too much of that out west here. Yeah, especially the last couple of years have been nice and wet, you know, even because usually in August there's something. Yeah. But uh, the last two years it's been nice. Have you seen a bear up there? Uh, up on the Mesa? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've seen, seen a few seen one yet. Yeah. Are you worried about seeing a wolf? No. I mean, no. like I, we talked all about kind of the livestock and the environment, but are you worried as a camper in the backcountry about wolves? No, I've I've never worried about wolves. I mean, the fact is, like, the interaction is so low. Even with, like, the the difference between bears and wolves is bears want to eat your food, right? Mm. So that and that's where most of the issues come from. Is you know that you have some toothpaste and and bears smell that, and because they're omnivores, heavy omnivores, more so, probably herbivores than they are carnivore black bears you know grizzlies is a whole different story but you know they want to eat they smell your your corn nuts and they're like is the toothpaste legit or is that a myth i don't know i've i've just always heard i mean it's sealed pretty well but i could imagine it being pretty smelly i i was more so using that as like the generic no i've heard that before too yeah i mean and everyone always says like don't put your toothpaste in there and i've always like really are the bears going after the toothpaste yeah but I guess they are. And I've never, like up on the Mesa, I've never, it, maybe this is stupid and I shouldn't be telling people this, but I've never like hung my food or anything like that. No, and, interesting. No, I mean, you know, it's one thing if you're in a camp site, but I'm usually like, you know, backpacking or, or car camping far away. And the bears are, they're so much more scared of you than we are of them and it, like you know the, the difference to be honest with you the difference between like a place like here in colorado is 
or in uh, California, you know, you hear nothing but issues in the Sierras with bears. Well, they're, they're hunted here. So they have a little fear of humans. Um, you know, so they, I I don't think they like to stick around as long. They don't hunt them in California. Uh, they can, but in, in that area, I don't think they can. Oh, interesting. They, they do it more, you know, down in the, in the main country, but I think there's some restrictions up in that area. Um, just because the, there's so much human activity up there. Do black bears ever kill humans? Oh yeah, yeah they, they do. do? Okay. Yeah, I mean there's mostly here like grizzlies and mm. but not too much black bear. Yeah, there was a lady that got killed in uh, Durango last year. Really? Yeah, black bear. But again, it's always food. It's like they're getting into they're getting into your your trash, and then you happen to come around the corner, and they think of you as a threat to their food. It's not it's not like predatory. It's right. never predatory with black bears. It's a reaction. To, exactly. Where did that happen to her? Deep in the woods or at a campsite? No, it was it was like right outside of her house. Oh, yeah. She there was a bear that was in the in the um, subdivision that she was in, and yeah, she was oh, just scary. I think that's what happened. She was like taking her trash out, and it had been feeding on her trash. And, you know, she just happened to be at the wrong spot at the right, wrong time. Oh, wow. We get them in Palisade. The bears, they come down to eat the peaches and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can run into one walking your dog. That's funny. And so that's kind of scary, too, if they can just straight up just attack you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think we've had that happen in Pali. But, yeah, I read a horrible story. I guess it was a couple of months ago now about in Yellowstone, this couple that, you know, older couple loved backpacking. They went backpacking with their dog mm. and they were able to send out a survival text to someone. And it said just bear attack, bad. I don't know if you read about oh, this. No. And when they got there, the dog was dead. Both of them were dead. The bear spray had been emptied. Damn. But that was a grizzly. So I think he wanted the food or whatever disturbed him, but he like left and came back. They were more predatory. Do you yeah. think bear spray would actually be effective on a bear that's angry? I don't. I mean, the. I think bear protection. It it depends so much on the bear, right? Like if it's a determined bear, right? It's probably not going to care. I feel like because it's like it's a mace essentially. Like if a bear is charging you, even if it comes in contact with it ten, fifteen feet away from you, its momentum is just going to. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it's on a war path and by the time it might get in his eyes, but he's already coming for you. Mm-hmm. Right. So he may just be lashing out and get you even if he is affected yeah. by it. I mean, it, there are cases where it's worked. There's cases where it hasn't worked. I mean, like I, I was listening to the meteor podcast. They had a, a woman on that was, she was actually a bear biologist and you know, they trapped a grizzly little did they know there was another grizzly around and she got charged and pulled the bear spray out and it, it worked. I mean, it still got after her. It like, it got onto her and then she sprayed and then it ran off, Oh! but it still did a little bit of damage, but not much. But then there's also cases cause like with bear spray, like we were up in Alaska, right? This last year and no trees around, it's windy. You're carrying around bear spray, but if you're spraying into the wind, it's, <laughs> it's not going to do anything. <laughs> so, so it's like, yeah, I never thought of that. Hey, bear, yeah. uh, could you actually attack me from this way? I guess yeah. you would have to sort of circle around somehow. Yeah. You got to play a way with position. Him. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. But that is one thing I've, I never mess with grizzlies. If there's grizzlies, like it's a whole different ball game. Cause uh, my, my uh, brother's girlfriend um, for two summers now, she's trapped grizzlies up in 
island park idaho area jesus yeah and badass yeah but like part of her job is is doing bear education and it is insane how stupid people can be with bears because they'll you know they'll go into a campsite where there's been a a a bear sighting a grizzly bear sighting you know and the the next step there is you go around every single camp site make sure you contact those people if they're not there you wait until they get back and tell them hey ensure that your food is up we have a grizzly in the area like don't mess around but it's like every time there's somebody that is like oh it's just doritos like they don't like doritos <laughs> and then the bear they comes love back. doritos yeah yeah we all love doritos i mean they probably yeah everybody does but but yeah, the the bear comes back, and that's when that bear has has to get euthanized because it's then it's getting used to people. So it's like I don't mess with grizzlies. They're that's one thing that when you say you don't met, like, do you mess with black bears? No, I, I shouldn't say that. But like, <laughs> I would say you I'm go up there teasing them, taunting them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> stuffing beef jerky, throwing Doritos out your tent window. I get out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here, here you go. No, I I, I don't meaning. There's some places where I've thought of like going to hunt, you know, up in Idaho and Montana, but it, you see that there's grizzlies there and I'm like, eh, I don't know if I even want to go up there. It's you a know? lot of stress if you're just trying to go for a camping backpacking trip. You yeah. Know? It's like they're huge mm-hmm. and they're aggressive. Yeah. It's kind of scary. Yeah. And I think bear spray, yeah, I sure it does work in some circumstances, but it's a total peace of mind thing, but it could be a false peace of mind as well, right? Yeah. You're like, oh. Uh, someone have the bear spray okay good it's like all right well good luck yeah there's so many factors yeah well and guns don't work all the time either do you think like a nine millimeter would work on a a black bear uh yeah probably i I actually was doing for our podcast we were actually looking at this topic and uh i did some research on effective like bear guns that you can use and actually there was there were just as many successful defense cases with a 22 which is totally not what people think of as a defense round there were just as many successful defenses with a 22 as there were for a 357 magnum which is like the big boy like that's what everybody says you need to that's like the minimum so i think what i gathered from that was if you got if it's a good shot, like especially on a black bear, right? I mean, a lot of black bears are like the size of a German shepherd around here. Um, so they're not, not very big. I mean, if you get a good shot, it's going to work. But, you know, the the thing is you got to think about like if that thing's charging you, are you going to be able to like to calmly take yeah. a shot? I, I don't know. I probably wouldn't. Yeah. So I, I think the best solution is just be cautious and try to stay away from bears as much as possible. And that's what I mean like by black bears. Like I – what I mean when I say I, I don't mess with grizzlies, like I just don't have as much fear of black bears, but you still got to be cautious, right? I mean, you're, you want to, you know, put your, your food outside your tent, you know, put it, put it in the, in the truck if you can, but it's not like I'm in grizzly country where I'm like, all right, I got to make sure that my camp is here and my food is stashed over here, and which my is kitchen is over there that I cook like yep. whole separate kitchen and all that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. Don't cook anything over the fire that kind no. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That I've, um, I've never seen a bear on the Mesa. Hmm. I've seen bear droppings. Yeah. Like places I've camped and stuff, but I've never seen an actual bear. Yeah. Maybe but one has seen me. Who knows? I, oh, I bet. Cause <laughs> where they are is they're in that thick choke cherry oak brush stuff 
that you can't even see into like especially in the in the fall man they they'll get into a patch of those berries and they just won't move if if they have food they're not going to move they're just so busy getting fattened up like you can in that fall like especially september i've noticed that's when i've probably seen the most bears because they're you know active they're trying to get ready for hibernation but you can if they're on a berry patch you can walk up to them be as loud as as you can they will not notice you they'll just be chowing down on berries so Mm. i'm sure that like they've probably been in your vicinity because there's a lot of them up there it's it's probably one of the higher concentrations in colorado just the the mesa there because there's so much food have you seen them on the land's end side of the highway so so i've i saw one up near island lake that was in the springtime i was i was fishing and he was kind of like in a swampy area uh but the majority of them i've i've seen on the cedar edge side mm. uh, just hiking around there and i don't i don't think they like that the top of the mesa as there's much nothing up there yeah, yeah it's too yeah. there's not a lot of thicket or protection or food probably yep yeah still waiting for my first moose too up there have you seen one uh i don't think i've seen one up there no yeah, me yeah. Either. I actually i have but it was more it was closer to paonia Mm. Which I kind of think of as less of the Mesa than like Land's End, you know. I haven't been to Payon yet, but I hear great things. That's awesome. It's a cool spot. Yeah. That, shoot, man. For your kombucha, you should look into uh, – they have a summer concert series uh, at uh, Big Bee's Orchard. You ah, heard I've heard yeah. of Big Bee's. Mm-hmm. They, they have like a little market thing in the back there that, you know, it's all local vendors selling all sorts of stuff from – kombucha i'm sure would would do great that would be cool the only problem with that is then i don't get to enjoy the party yeah which sucks well i think most of those (laughs) yeah stupid business (laughs) always getting in the way oh man well i know it's getting late mate and you got a ball game to get to so i appreciate you coming by i just want to reiterate i think it's so cool you guys are here and i'm glad to help spread the word because i don't think people realize we have a tent maker here in the valley well how are you reaching local people are you guys trying to reach local audience a little more yeah so we got I'll, I'll try to make it brief here so we're actually doing a uh, wild game dinner on december 15th here at the shop you're welcome to come if you want really yeah we're gonna be having a um, bunch of so we're teaming up with a, organi- a conservation organization called uh, backcountry hunters and anglers and we're gonna just do essentially a potluck type thing everybody brings in some sort of wild game and then we're going to be doing like a, we got a couple guys from Colorado Parks and Wildlife coming to do like a State of the Union, talk about wolves, talk about some of the hunting stuff. And then we're going to be doing a winter camping seminar. So we're doing that. Winter camping seminar. Mm-hmm. That's yep. cool. Yeah, That's just, happening here. Yeah. And that'll just be presentations on how to camp in the winter, things like that. Yeah, we're, we're mostly, it's I think it's going to be more like beginner centric. So we're going to like have a tent set up and go over like, this is what we have set up this is you know possibly what you can look for it's going to be a quicker thing but then we're going to follow it'll probably be like a 15 20 minute presentation followed by a big q a i think that's so Um, cool though yeah yeah Yeah, like some just community outreach and getting people involved definitely uh you'll have to send me the dates for all these so i can share them thanks so much for having me by man appreciate you thanks go camping sometime yeah thanks for the opportunity all right appreciate it cheers man thanks yes now
now I'm riding the terrain, flying high up once again. Got my crew sitting healthy and my boo living wealthy. Level 99, never settle in my mind. So I pedal and I climb up the pedestal and find almighty weapons. So I calm lightly step into the castle, satchel, tackled, wrestled. Down the corridor where I'm grounded through the floor. Roundhouse into my core, down, out, and through the door. Sword down at my side, I gotta round up and ride. Face boss, break jaws till I take off. Face off, stop and swing my serious strike. This is it, take the title, disappear in the night. To the whole wide world. Got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the whole wide world. Slay the boss in the castle when we cross final battle. Then I walk out and travel to the whole wide world. Got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the whole wide world. Slay the boss in the castle when we cross final battle.